Thanks for listening to today's episode of What the F*** is Biodiversity. My name is Jamie, and I work for the NGO, the National Environmental Treasure. We recently launched a campaign to spread the word about the impact of biodiversity loss and how we can all protect our planet. One million species are already at risk of extinction, and many are disappearing 1,000 to 10,000 times their natural extinction rate. But don't despair. There are many things we can do as individuals, as communities, and as a country to tackle this issue. Throughout our podcast series, we will explore the amazing world of biodiversity, why it's so vital for humans, what is causing its decline, and of course, tangible solutions for its conservation. Today's episode is all about soil biodiversity. Our very own Dr. Anne Dale will be talking with Dr. Valerie Bien Peltier all about the amazing work of soil mites. Val is the world's foremost expert on soil biodiversity and has infinite experience in the ecology of arthropods and soil and canopy habitats. She even has a few species of mites named after her. With all her research experience and accolades, I'd honestly be here all day listing her accomplishments. So be sure to check out her bio on our website. During today's episode, Anne and Val talk all about the incredibly biodiverse world that lives beneath our feet and how it's connected to the ground above that we as humans inhabit. Now, one thing you may not know is that humans rely so much on soil mites. These teeny tiny arthropods are an integral part of the soil food web. Basically, wherever there's food or vegetation, there are soil mites. And without the vital work they do, the quality of our food was seriously declined. Now, without further ado, here's Anne and Val. Hi, Val. How are you? Great, Anne. And perhaps I should introduce myself. No, no, I thought I'd introduce you. Oh, you would? Yes. Okay. Once upon a time, I introduced you as Dr. Valerie Bean Beltier, one of uh, North America's three most experts in her field. And you gently corrected me with a smile on your face and you said, the top two. Oh, no, I never said that. <laughs> I work on arabatid mites. So these are soil mites basically found in soils everywhere from the Arctic to the tropics. And um, I've worked on them for my entire career. And they're an integral component of soil biodiversity. So tell me, why this fascination with mites? Well, okay. I had no interest in animals of any type when I was young. But um, I took botany at high school. I loved it. I was going to be a botanist. Until I went to university, I had my first zoology class. I looked down the microscope and it was a, um, a freshwater pond in a dish. And I saw all of these things moving around and I was hooked. So then we moved to soil and I saw these things wandering around, you know, some of them looked like dinosaurs, some of them looked like cheetahs, and the Petri dish they were in was a miniature Serengeti. And I have, I'm very short-sighted, so I thought, this is what, these are wonderful. I can, as it were, transfer the Serengeti to, to the soil habitat. And I can work on things that are living in soil. I don't have to depend on insects that'll fly away. I don't have to get money to go to the Serengeti, expensive uh, proposition as a graduate, or at that time as an undergraduate. And um, so in any case, that's how it started. 
And then I was lucky enough that I had an excellent soil ecology uh, lecturer. And I was her first, let's say, undergraduate student who was interested in soil ecology. We went out and collected soil from different habitats. And at that stage, I was fascinated by calembola, springtails. And you'll have seen those, I think, in um, sometimes in spring when you're walking in snow. And if you look carefully, you'll see hundreds and hundreds of little black brown things jumping about. And they're calembola that are, as soon as spring comes, they're basically looking for food. And so they start moving out of the ground, the litter, and they get in, held in our footsteps in the snow. And there are just hundreds and hundreds of them. And I think every year somebody phones up some show or other on CBC saying, oh, you know, there are thousands and thousands of these little bugs outside. What should I do? And they're completely harmless. In fact, beneficial part of soil biodiversity. So tell me why all of these little bugs, these mites and different kinds, how many kinds are there? Well, at present, we know that um, there are about 50,000 species of mites alone, um, a minimum of 50,000 species. But we estimate that there are, are a million species or in that ballpark. And um, they're very small, as you know. Uh, they're basically the size of a head of a pin, most of them. And the biggest ones then are ticks. And ticks are just uh, mites. Really? Yeah. And so why are critters or creatures or little mites so important for biodiversity? Well, um, first of all, they're part of biodiversity. It's not, we ask why they're important because we look at things from um, an anthropomorphic standpoint. Okay, hold on here. Anthropomorphism is when we attribute human traits or emotions to animals or inanimate objects. A good example is when we associate weather patterns with emotions, like the sky seems angry right before a storm. You also see this in lots of Disney movies where animals take on human roles, like the mice in Cinderella. And we're all always asking, well, what is this doing for me? But actually, mites, no different than birds, no different than ticks, no different than, um, than any other species out there, has a, an existence that is integral to that species. And so mites don't need to do anything for us to exist. However, we benefit enormously from virtually all the mites in soil. They're part of what we call the soil food web. And so if you think, okay, so we live on what's, what ecologists call the above ground. So when you go out for a walk with your dog, Anne, you're looking at the trees, you're looking at the plants, your dog is sniffing, whatever, but everything is above ground. And we don't really think that, in fact, most of us don't think that basically at our feet in the soil and litter is a, a mirror world, soil biodiversity. And so in the above ground, the food web, the basis of the food web is um, grasses, uh, mosses, lichens, etc. And things eat those, um, cows, uh, deer, uh, raccoons, whatever, whatever. And, um, and then they're eaten in turn by something else. Well, in the, and of course, all of those things will die eventually. 
And so, and they end up on soil and they end up being incorporated into soil. And the basis of the soil food web is dead plants, dead animals and living roots. So there's an, a kind of an alternate, um, complete um, circle of life going on in the soil, which of course interacts with the above ground and affects the above ground. But there is a soil food web and um, all the thousands of species of mites, nematodes, amoeba, calembola, insect larvae, etc. are feeding in that food web. And they, the basis of the food web, as I said, is, is what we call dead organic matter, high in carbon. So the dead trees, the dead plants, the dead mosses, etc., etc., the dead animals. And then they're fed on by fungi, by bacteria, which are, are in turn fed on by mites, calembola, etc., etc., which are in turn fed on by other things and so on the whole way up the food chain to the top predators. And the top predators are um, as important in the blow ground as the fox, the coyote, the wolf, the lion and tigers are in the above ground. Because you always need predators to, they're basically the control on a, on a system. Would you describe this underground world then connected to the food web as a dynamic interconnected network? Yes, Anne, you've absolutely caught it. So it's dynamic, it's active the whole time, it's interconnected. All of these, all of these species have their as it were, have their, it's not their place, but they're doing, they're doing something that suits them. They're eating fungus, for example, for some of the mites. And it is a system because organic matter is coming in, it's dead. And the system is, is working that organic matter up that food web. And the product of all of that, that benefits us is that nutrients are released from this organic matter. Those nutrients get carried back or are taken up by living plant roots, which means that we have producing plants. Now, not only do, does this system, interconnected system, improve our plant production, but it also works the soil so that we have a more friable soil. We have a soil that's easier for plants to grow in. And it also it improves the organic matter content of soil. In fact, it helps make soil. So, and we know that basically healthy soil brings about a number of things. It brings about the food, healthy food which where we're concerned is probably the most important thing, but it also, it washes our water because when you think about it, most water falls on, well, let's say other than in urban areas, most water falls on, let's say vegetation covered soils. And it also helps clean our air because over time, air also passes through that soil. So we have benefits to us, 
But that's really not why mites are there. You know, they're not mites aren't sitting around saying, oh, we better work hard today because Andale wants um, good food, good organic food. No, but in the process of what they're doing, they bring about these benefits to us, which are enormous because basically I think so, I think the measurement is something like 80 percent of our food comes from terrestrial habitats. I mean, that's incredible. And we want that food to be organic. We want it to be quality food. And we're not going to get that unless we have healthy soil. So that's what soil biodiversity is doing to help us. And it's sort of the, is it, can you, is it fair to describe it as sort of the basic foundation for life, would you say? It's, it's um, fundamental to, it's fundamental to the life of any organism, any terrestrial organism. So it's not fundamental to life per se. It's fundamental to the, um, to continuing living of any terrestrial organism. Because unless you have, unless photosynthesis, um, that process goes on in plants, which is turned into plant material. And unless that happens, we're not going to get plants. Okay, but let's say we just, let's say our system above ground just has plants and just has plants. Okay, so all of those plants die. And um, in that dead organic matter in the soil and litter, all the nutrients that those plants got from the soil are all just sitting there and they're not being used. And um, the carbon is sitting there as well. And so you need the soil, this soil biodiversity to release those nutrients so the plants can take them back up. And also we need that soil biodiversity just to make quality soil. I mean, it was a shock to me to realize that it takes about a hundred years to make a centimeter of soil. You know, from our standpoint, soil is a non-renewable resource. And of course, in, um, let's say, high uh, insecticide agriculture, what we're doing is, let's say, a cornfield where you're going to add nutrients. Okay, so you have your cornfield, you add, the plant takes up the nutrients from the soil, uh, the plants die, the organic matter goes into the soil. Now, what we do is we churn that soil, we till it, we kill a lot of the diversity, we have um, changed the dynamics of our, of our food web in soil, and that soil layer will be ever so slightly thinner than it was the year before. Did we change the dynamics yes, or we did, we, did we interrupt uh, in a very negative way, this, this, what I'm hearing from you, this dynamic interconnected network. And then another question I have, if you don't mind, is yeah. can you knock out critical parts of that network so that the network would collapse? Is that what you're saying? Um, now, this is a very interesting, um, both theoretical and practical discussion, because it's very difficult to set up an experiment, a double blind experiment, where you can take out components of that food web. Uh, people have tried to do it and some of the studies have shown that yes, you can remove, 
some of those components or that you will get um, effective decomposition going with a smaller number of species than you would expect. But the difficulty is scaling that up. And we know that the advantage of having diversity is that something happens like a drought. Something happens like, um, well, a drought is a good one. Something happens like a drought. Well, our system doesn't collapse because there are species there that are going to be able to accommodate that drought. Their genetic makeup is such that they can tolerate less moisture than other species. Okay, so biodiversity functions as a safeguard for the planet. If one species disappears, then others can compensate. However, as we continue to lose biodiversity, this failsafe is less effective. This diminishes resilience and vitality for all life on Earth. And without genetic diversity, humans risk drought, famine, disease, and a lack of natural barriers to extreme weather conditions. A historic example of the impact of biodiversity loss on humans is the Great Famine in Ireland during the 19th century. As potatoes grew increasingly popular in the Irish diet, especially among working class citizens, farmers began almost exclusively growing the Irish lumper potato. With essentially only a single variety available, this eliminated genetic diversity in potato crops. Crops that fed countless citizens across the country were naturally infected with fungus, which is known as potato blight. Farmers had no backup varieties to grow that may have been resilient in the soil conditions that destroyed the Irish lumper variety. While there were many other contributing factors, Ireland faced mass starvation and disease, partially because of a lack of genetic diversity in potato crops. Roughly one million people died, and another one million people left their homeland in search of a better life. So it's a bit, it's, it's the rivets in the plane situation. And um, so you think you're flying in that plane. Well, we'll have to talk about planes that were made a little while back when they still had rivets. But you're flying in that plane and somebody decides, oh, well, really, we can, we can go without 25% of those rivets. And um, why do we have them? They're costing us a fortune. But the question is, which rivets? And then the question also is, which rivets under which situations. So the advantage of having soil biodiversity or above ground biodiversity is that we don't have to ask that question because our ecosystems have built in resilience. And we remove that resilience when we are depending on nutrients being added by fertilizers or when we're um, depending on pe pesticides to kill off our, you know, pest insects or whatever. So resilience is key. And redundancy? Or are they the same? Redu no, redundancy is the rivet question. So are some of those rivets redundant? Okay. And as I... I would say that this is a question in ecology that has gone on, theoretical ecology, that has gone on for probably the last 25 years. And it, there's push and pull, push and pull. And, um, but what, in, gen in general, what, has, what you see when you go out to a natural system, let's say desert or 
boreal forest or whatever. So we have a fire in the boreal forest. Okay, it's, it's a bit devastating, okay. But we do know that boreal forest will come back, even though we have large areas that are burnt down. And that is because we have resilience, as you say, as a result of having those so many rivets having that little bit of redundancy. You're right, there are many species that are probably doing something very similar to another species. So where they're concerned, they're ever so slightly different. You know, their life cycle, for example, some of them, they um, their life cycle might be 28 days. Others, their life cycle is um, half a year. So they differ on, on small little things. Their eggs are produced at a different time. Their, um, their uh, feeding uh, is ever so slightly different than, the, than another species. And when, we, when, people do, when people study the ecology of specific species, that is what they find, that closely related species do have these subtle differences. Now, we're trying to find them in humans between Homo sapiens and Neanderthals. We know they're very, very close, and every day we find, or sorry, not every day, but every time you open a journal, you find more similarity between us. But at some stage, they'll find something that makes the difference between our two species. Now, I understand that you've collected mites from many, many different places, Canada, North America. Once you invited me to go up into the canopy, tree canopy with you. Can you explain, are there mites in a tree canopy? Of course, Anne. <laughs> so, so mites, okay, so it's probably the one thing I can talk about with a certain level of knowledge, but you find mites in general just about everywhere. So recently they found there are two habitats on Earth where you don't have life, which is pretty amazing. One of them is a place in the Antarctic, a very windswept ridge, and another is a very, very toxic um, pond somewhere, I think, in Yellowstone National Park. But mites are found wherever you have any vegetation whatsoever. And vegetation can be just pollen grain. Ah, now so, I'm okay, yeah. So wherever there's food. I mean, you, they can't photosynthesize, but the food doesn't have to be growing there. It can be just pollen grains. So in the canopy, the old growth canopy in the Pacific Northwest, so on Vancouver Island, th those trees are 500 years old plus. And when you go up in, in them, there's what they call suspended soils. So these are soils that have built up over these 500 years on substrate. So wherever you have an undisturbed terrestrial substrate, you're going to find mites. So terrestrial substrates is basically the natural environment where organisms live or grow. Examples of terrestrial substrates are grasslands, tropical rainforests, deserts, temperate forests, among many others, and in this case, tree canopies that house suspended soils. Now, I should also mention, because I'd be shot if I didn't, that you find mites in all aquatic situations. And you also find mites in uh, marine systems. So there's a species of mite that's found in the deep sea vents in the oceans. So if there's food, there's probably going to be mites. And of course, there are loads that are parasites. 
and um, there are loads of commensals. I mean, we have two species of mites. I know I've seen one of mine, and um, but virtually every vertebrate and insect that's bigger than a mite is likely to have a mite impacting it in some way or another. So all of those species, it's a bit like the horror we have, oh my God, why don't we get rid of, of mosquitoes? But we always look at other species from our narrow window of us. And that's very dangerous, I think. A lot of your work, from what I understand in our many, many conversations over the years, involves a lot of classification of these things. Now, why is that important? Because each species is different. So imagine, we spend a lot of time as Homo sapiens deciding what is it that makes us Homo sapiens? What is, what is the, um, the breadth of our morphology? What is the variability in our morphology? And we know that everybody that's found on Earth at present is one species. So we know that morphology. But let's think 50,000 different species of mites. Each species has a range of morphology, something equivalent to the range of morphology you're going to um, find, let's say, in humans. So good example are dogs, the domestic dog, and the range of variability you find in domestic dogs, and yet they're one species. We know if we put males and females of even the most far apart ones on a desert island, they would probably be able to reproduce. So we have all these species and we want to know their relationship to each other. And that is what classification is. So we don't want to put them in a box and say, well, that's spur A, that's spur B, that's spur C. We want to put them in a box and say, oh, species A is really like species D. They share a unique characteristic, and we call that a genus. So Homo, for example. Homo is a genus. Canis is a genus. And then we go out a bit further and we look at genera and we ask the same question. Are there genera that share unique features? There's a term for it, but I won't bother saying it here. Um, apomorphies, it is actually autoapomorphies. But we look at ones that share features that are distinct from something else and we cluster those as families and then so on out. And that's our system of classification. And so we end up with um, insects that you can define what are insects, you can define what are mites, you can define what are spiders. And we do it because if we come across something new, Let's say I'm walking in, um, you know, I'm walking on your property and I pick up something. If I look at it and it's got three pairs of legs and no wings, okay. So my options are basically two. It's either a larval tick or it is an insect that does not have wings. And then I can go further, next stage, well, what are other things, components to it? Does it have antenna? Definitely an insect and so on and so on. So that's the value of classification. It is being able to put things together that share common um, attributes, that share common morphology. And now we do it with DNA, that share genes that, um, and, and so on. Did, did I explain that or are you still lost? Well, 
I'm beginning to see some, some patterns here that's sort of similar with how human societies are organized that, you know, it's relationships, it's networks, it's systems. Yeah. But, but I'm, and I'm sure your, your field gets this, this comment from, from people who aren't aware. So what good does this classification? Once again, I'm coming at it from a very selfish, egocentric perspective. So if there's so many of them, so what if we lose uh, uh, a few? Okay, so what are the co-benefits of um, classification? Wondering what co-benefits are? Well, I got you covered. They are basically benefits that go beyond tackling just one issue. So a good example is when we create compact walkable cities, we can reduce the number of cars on the road, which in turn reduces GHG emissions. This also encourages people to walk, cycle, or run more, which can improve human health in a community. So basically, there are multiple benefits that come from one action. And we can look at it from our standpoint. I mean, from, I have to tell you, from a mite standpoint, it is irrelevant because, of course, a mite doesn't know that it is X is Y is. It doesn't know that. But from our standpoint, I've walked in your backyard and I've picked up that thing, that arthropod with three pairs of legs. I think you'd probably want to know whether that was an insect that was benign or a, t a larval tick. Good example, especially with how, uh, how ticks are proliferating. People yeah, are getting are, more, yeah. more concerned Lyme about disease. Lyme So that's disease. really why we, do, that's one of the reasons. I mean, there are a number of reasons why we do it. But we, we know that there are a series of characteristics associated with that name, that classification. And we know that we've studied it and that is usually very useful to us so for another example would be let's say there are loads of mites in greenhouses they're in the soil they're in greenhouses but when i want and the, on all of these by the way have larvae with three pairs of legs the adults have four pairs of legs but i want to know more than that because i know actually just by looking at them, that in fact there's one species that is feeding on my plants and doing enormous damage to my plants and there's another species that's a predator on those mites that are feeding on my plants. And I want to both be able to know that both of those are there and, or at least I would prefer the predator, but the predator needs food. And um, so that's why we classify. So it's, it's sort of like a library, isn't it? Like you have to classify books in a library, so it's a library of life, and there's many it is. different libraries of life, and the more we know, then we're becoming more resilient and redundant. Yeah, it's probably <laughs> more, it's a, a more solid classification than just classification than a library, because it is, as you said, a library of life. And it's based on evolutionary relationships. So that's why we're always trying to find something unique that ties species together in genera, that ties genera together, I'm sorry, species together in a genus, that ties genera together in a family and so on. And so we develop a hypothesis of the evolutionary relationships of these, and then of course test that now with genetics and um, and so on. Okay, so full disclosure, 
Anne's phone goes off in the next segment. But we couldn't bear to cut it because their conversation is so great. Also, I'm guessing you're dying to find out what Solomites are named after Val. I understand you've even had a mite named after you. Many. Many? Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, give me in the name of one. Your well, favorite one. Oh, oh, I can't say favorites because, of course, you get a knife made, named after you by a, usually by a colleague, and it's a very big honor. So I have, um, hmm, I have Ceratopia valeria. I have uh, a number of Bihanes. I think I have a Ceratozetes Bihane. And probably I'm, one of the ones I'm really proud of is a, um, a genus that's named after me, Val Bianella. Ah, Val Bianella. How pretty. It yes. is lovely. But I also have a tardigrade named after me. A what? A tardigrade. What's a tardigrade? Tardigrade? Oh, um, you haven't been reading your your guardian nature or something. In any case, tardigrades are what are called water bears. And they live, uh, they're related to insects. They're not insects, you know, they're kind of at the edge of insects. They have three pairs of stubby legs and they, they are bar none the cutest things that you're likely to see in a moss sample. So they live in the, the water between the fronds of moss. And again, they're found everywhere. And um, they're, uh, they're both aquatic and terrestrial. I mean, terrestrial, even though they're living in an aquatic type environment. And we call them water bears because you kind of feel even though they're only about a third of a millimetre in size, that you could easily hug them. Now, they became very famous recently because one of the moonshots, I think, I can't remember whether it was the Japanese or the Russians, brought them up with them because tardigrades can survive for years and years and years without moisture. They basically go into anhydro, what's called anhydrobiosis, and they can live up to 100 years plus. So they're bringing, they were bringing them up to see how they would do in space. And so the tardigrades were doing fine on the, on the spaceship, but then they had to dump something on the surface of the moon. So the question is, are the tardigrades going to survive because there's no air, but they have, tardigrades have been put through um, graph machines. They have been frozen to as cold as you can go. So who knows, sometimes somebody will go up to the moon, find them and um, find tard living tardigrades. Talking to you, Val, always makes me think how little we know of our world and about the ecology of the world. And we, we maybe can understand our impacts on the world, but the world itself is such a fascinating, wonderful place to be. Now, we've had two very disturbing reports come out recently. Um, one from the IPCC saying we only have 12 years. What Anne is referring to here is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which published a very alarming report in 2018. It basically warns that we only have 12 years left to limit the climate crisis, and this was back in 2018. If we go beyond 1.5 degrees Celsius, we risk even more extreme drought, floods, extreme heat, and poverty for millions of people, which are all many things that we're already seeing. And the other one on biodiversity, that the loss of, of um, species is at an unprecedented rate. 
And I was reading an obituary about Norman Myers, quite a famous scientist. And he had, uh, I, I think what I read is uh, they were predicting earlier on in his career that we were losing species at one, one a year. And he said, no, we're losing species at one a day. And he was severely critiqued for that when in actual fact he was right. So we've got, we've got a big job ahead to try and reverse the biodiversity loss. Um, what are they calling it? The sixth, uh, mass sixth mass extinction we're now facing. I was privileged to have you participate in um, a series of conversations from women from nature talking about biodiversity and, and its importance to Canadians. And out of that, um, we led a series of four conversations over, I guess, six or seven months. And out of that, we came up with a biodiversity action agenda for all Canadians. And um, I know there's another disturbing report we've got is the loss of the uh, Amazonian uh, rainforest. And, you know, once again there we have, you know, an individual, one politician who's got so much power and is directing, you know, massive destruction in the, in the Amazon. So I'm going to ask you two questions that we're going to close with, if you don't mind. Uh, the first one is, what are the top three recommendations from the biodiversity action agenda that, that you would say we should immediately act on? And then the second one I'd like, I'd like to close with is, what gives you hope? Oh, aren't you tough? <laughs> Actually, I would agree with you completely that we have, it seemed that uh, uh, biology is a missing ingredient in education. But I was reassured yesterday, I was talking to one of my colleagues and her daughter is um, eight and they're studying soil in schools. So I, I, it's, it's marvelous, you know, things are happening. So I am actually now looking at the biodiversity um, conservation, the call for action that you mentioned. And the one thing that struck me, Anne, is the to ensure large landscape connectivity. And basically, to get the hell, humans to get the hell out of 20 to 25%, 30% of our land. So you just heard Val reference protected areas. This is a major solution for biodiversity loss. To give you a little context, the Canadian federal, provincial, and territorial governments released biodiversity targets and goals in 2015. Target 1 sets a goal for protecting at least 17% of terrestrial areas and inland waters, along with 10% of coastal and marine areas by 2020. However, the goalpost has now shifted. The federal government has committed to protecting 25% by 2025 and 30% by 2030. You can learn more about protected areas in our episode featuring Jeremy Guth. Of, sorry, not our land, of Canada. And um, because we know that wherever we are, because we are the dominant species, because we are an overpopulated species, because we are high consumers, that uh, because we are um, inevitably, I suppose all species, like all species, a selfish species, we damage environments. So even if we say, 
oh, we'll put a national park someplace. The assumption will be is that we can, that we can walk in that park. No, if we're putting aside 20 to 25% of land for non-human biodiversity, we need to do that. That's preeminent. And number two, Canada is big enough that we can ensure connectivity between these set-aside areas. And there are so many articles in the last couple of years on the, the mountain caribou. The ones that are, the, there is populations in Canada and populations in the States. And the States has done everything to maintain that population. And we in Canada have been pussyfooting about the, um, the regulations to ensure that that fauna can move back and forth. And of course, we're going to say, oh, well, you know, we need to have border patrol. We, we need to have, we need to be able to monitor. No, just let these animals have this space. And we need that connectivity. We need connectivity both north-south. So we need that corridor from Yukon to, um, is it Yellow, Yellowstone? And we need that connectivity across the Arctic and the Boreal. So that would bring me to the other recommendation that I think is absolutely essential. We have to, we have to do everything. And I'm not quite sure, I'm, I'm not a, a social scientist, so I don't know what that everything is, to get Indigenous Canadians involved. Because Indigenous Canadians understand biodiversity and of course, many of these lands we'd like to set aside are, are, are their property. So we are going to have to do everything. We should be putting aside large sums of money to engage, to get Indigenous Canadians talking about what we should be doing to bring about this 25 to 30%. I would say we have to think really, really big. And there was an excellent article in the Maclean's on the salmon population in, on the west coast of BC. They recently found old uh, records of salmon catches and salmon scales that were in these notebooks from earlier in the 20th century. And what it shows is how much the salmon populations have gone down. So the present uh, sustainable catch is based on 1960 figures and these notebooks give data from the early 20th century and point out how salmon population has just plummeted. So what do we do to ensure that kind of biodiversity, to bring it back up? We did it with the cod, or at least to some extent. So we know it's possible that we can do it. I think that's important. And I would say number three is urban settings. That we stop looking at urban and nature. That we start looking at the urban as just nature waiting to happen, really. And that every time there are spare spots, that we encourage gardens that every time there is a little square outside a house that um, could possibly 
be have a garden on it, that we encourage that. That rather than having bylaws that worry about the height of your grass, that we have bylaws that encourage you to grow plants in your front lawn, that, you know, vegetables in your front lawn. Yes, that we bring nature more effectively into our urban lives. And what gives you hope that we're going to be able to do it? Or maybe you don't. I, 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 I go up and down, Anne. think we're such an extraordinarily selfish species. And we are so dirty. That's about the only way I could describe it. We pollute and we do it even, you know, if the best of intentions we, we pollute. We don't consider our population impact. Okay, we have 7.5 billion humans. We probably have uh, 2.5 billion domestic pets. We, um, you know, whatever. We just don't think about the consumption that we generate. But I have to tell you, every time I see a David Attenborough film, I just, I just have, of course I have hope because nature is extraordinarily resilient. We've pushed it. And we know we've pushed it with the salmon, we pushed it with the cod. We have pushed it over the last hundred years with agriculture where we add the missing elements with, with fertilizers, you know, uh, commercial fertilizers rather than organic matter. Uh, we've pushed it, of course, with, with our impact on climate change. And nature has survived five other extinctions. We'll be gone. I mean, if you're asking for hope, I'm not so worried for the mites as I am for Homo sapiens, is how I would put it. I've had the pleasure today of talking to Dr. Valerie Bean Pelche, one of the foremost experts in many, many different things and beyond mites to biodiversity. She has been formative in my own academic journey. I have learned so much about ecology, and it is just an extreme pleasure to have talked to you today, Val. Thank you so much. It's a real joy, and you're a wonder to even attempt this effort. Thanks for listening to What the F*** is Biodiversity. Today's episode was produced by Lot2 Media and the National Environmental Treasure and edited by B. Jill Cran. The music was also composed by B. Jill Cran. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe. And if you want to learn more about our NGO, the National Environmental Treasure, which we call NET for short, visit our website at oursafetynet.org. Also, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. If you'd like to help us spread the word about biodiversity or contribute to our trust fund, you can find us on Canada Helps.